My brothers and sisters, the debate starts once again. Should Muslims participate in politics in a democracy, since democracy itself is not an Islamic form of government? So let me try to put this in perspective. <clears throat> First of all, there is no specific form of government that is Islamic. If anyone disputes that statement <clears throat> and says that the Khilafah is the only form of government that is permissible in Islam, then we have to ask why it is that ever since the ascension of Yazid bin Muawiyah, monarchy has been accepted as Islamic, even by Sahaba who lived under Yazid and supported his rule. This continued even though the terms Khalifa and Khilafah continued to be used off and on until the institution of Khilafah was finally abolished in 1923. For the record, the Ottoman rulers called themselves Sultan and not Khalifa, though the government itself was called Khilafah. How does that work? So what is the Islamic form of government? Islam is concerned with the nature of the government, not necessarily its form. Consider this. The Khilafah Rashida itself followed three different processes to choose a successor in the case of the first three Khulafa. In the case of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, it was an election of the supreme leader by lesser leaders in Medina. This was the usual way of the Arabs when electing a new Amir or chief of their clans where the decision would be taken by a few significant and powerful elders and leaders, and everyone else would accept and support it. So also in this case, it was not one man, one vote involving the entire population of Medina. Even if that had been the case, hypothetically speaking, one could have argued that the people of Makkah and Taif and Najd and all the tribes of the Hijaz had not voted. Yet the leader being chosen uh, would have authority over all Muslims. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq who was elected by the people who had gathered in the Saqifah Bani Sa'ada and was later ratified by the rest of the community in Masjid al-Nabawi al-Sharif when other people gave him the bayah or oath or pledge of allegiance. In the election in the Saqifah Bani Sa'ada, which itself was not planned but, but was impromptu, many of the important Sahaba of Rasulullah including Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib were not present and neither was their opinion sought. This was not deliberate or by design, but because Ali bin Abi Talib was busy with the burial of Rasulullah and he was not disturbed and he gave his pledge the next day. But since Abu Bakr Siddiq was already accepted as the foremost among the Sahaba and their leader, nobody objected and they all, including Ali bin Abi Talib, gave him their pledge. They remembered that Rasulullah always sought his advice and gave him precedence over everyone else because of him having been the first man to accept Islam and for his service to, to Islam and to Rasulullah They remembered that Abu Bakr was Rasulullah's companion in the cave when he was his companion during Hijrah from Makkah to Medina and his many other qualities. People remembered that Rasulullah had given him imamat of, of Salah from the Thursday before the Monday when he passed away. For the Sahaba, that was a clear sign that Rasulullah preferred and had thereby nominated Abu Bakr al-Siddiq as his successor. Having said that, there are people to this day, 14 centuries later, who differ and say that the Khilafah should have gone to Ali bin Abi Talib. 
The fact that Ali bin Abi Talib himself never said this, nor did he object to the leadership of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq and gladly gave his bayah oath of allegiance with sincerity. Well, what else do you expect of Ali bin Abi Talib? This cuts no ice with them. We will put that dispute aside as it is not relevant to this discussion. And look at what happened two years later when Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was dying. Awakar <clears throat> Siddiq took the advice of the Ashar of Mubashara, the ten Sahaba who had been promised Jannah by Rasulullah about his proposed choice, Umar ibn al-Khattab as his successor. All of them except one, Zubair bin Awam accepted this choice and so Awakar Siddiq called Umar ibn al-Khattab and nominated him. This action of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was in keeping with the informal but clearly understood and accepted hierarchy among the Sahaba in which the Ashar al-Mubashara came first followed by the Badriyin, the Sahaba who participated in the Battle of Badr and then everyone else. Ten years later, when Umar al-Khattab had been stabbed and was dying, he called the rest of the Ashar al-Mubashara and told them to choose one among them to succeed him. Some of them declined to accept the role of Khalifa. There were two contenders who remained. Abdurrahman ibn Awf who was a scholar among the Sahaba and one of the wealthiest businessmen of the time was himself from the Ashar al-Mubashara and who had declined to be considered for Khalifa was chosen to pick between them. He decided to consult the Sahaba who participated in the Battle of Badr and at the end of this consultation he borrowed the Amama of Rasulullah and wearing it he ascended the member of Masjid al-Nabawi al-Sharif and announced Uthman ibn Affan as the leader who had been chosen to succeed Umar ibn al-Khattab Everyone accepted this choice, including Ali ibn Abi Talib who also accepted Umar ibn al-Khattab as the Khalifa and worked under him. Uthman ibn Affan Khilafa ended in war and Ali ibn Abi Talib was forced to accept the Khilafa to put an end to the worst turmoil and violence that the Muslims had ever seen. However, this was also contested and we have a history of ever more complex conflicts thereafter. Once again, I'm not going into details here as they are not relevant for this discussion. What is relevant, however, is that 20 years later, when, when Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan was dying, he nominated his son Yazid bin Muawiyah, also called Yazid I, as, khal- as Khalifa, thereby dispensing with the entire selection and election process and converting the Khilafah to a hereditary monarchy. This became the default Muslim or Islamic form of government all over the world, from the Banu Umayyah who started it, to the Banu Abbas, the Fatimi, the Ayubi, the Safawid, the Mughal, the Uthmani, the Ottoman uh, and other rulers right down to our modern times who all accepted hereditary monarchy as the way Muslim lands were to be governed. We are talking about a period from the 7th century all the way to the 20th century. Now, before we blame the kings, however, let us reflect on the fact that none of the subjects, including Sahaba, who accepted Yazid bin Muawiyah, all the imams of fiqh, all the ulama of the tabi'in and their followers, including to this day, have ever criticized or refused to accept hereditary monarchy as being un-Islamic or call for the establishment of the Khilafah. One reason could be that the Khilafah Rashida itself was established in three different ways. So which of them would, you, would one choose? 
The point that I want to make is that it appears from reading our history that Islam is more concerned with the nature of government than its form. Our classical and modern scholars seem to be agreed upon this and this seems to be the majority view. Islam is concerned with how the government is carried on, whether it establishes the law of Allah as mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah, whether it establishes justice or not, whether the poor and weak are taken care of, whether there is corruption or not, and whether law is enforced so that crime is minimized if not eradicated. It is not concerned with how the government itself came into being, if that government did what all good governments are supposed to do, that is good governance. Therefore, different forms of governments were accepted as valid and legal if they provided good governance. In this context, um, it is in this context that we must look at democracy today when some people say that Muslims must not participate in democracy because it's not Islamic. My contention is that there is no such thing as an Islamic form of government. What is Islamic about a government lies in its actions of governing. Obviously, there is a great, great misunderstanding about forms of government which is exacerbated by our general lack of knowledge of history so that we have no perspective or decision-making ability. We must correct this urgently. It is in this context that we need to look at democracy and the role of Muslim citizens who live in democratic countries. Should they participate in government from voting to standing for election, discharging their responsibilities in different capacities in parliaments and senates, or should they abstain from doing any of these things? And if they should abstain, then how are they to ensure that their rights and needs and issues are represented and addressed by a government that they didn't elect or showed any interest in? My contention is that democracy, like monarchy, uh, is simply a form of government, neither Islamic nor, nor un-Islamic. Citizens of democratic countries must participate in democracy for the simple reason that all change can only be initiated and implemented from within. As a matter of interest, if we take the very first form of government of the Muslim state after Rasulullah passed away, it was a democratic decision. As I mentioned earlier, it was different from our present form of universal suffrage leading to universal suffering except for politicians, but it was democracy nevertheless. The reason we Muslims must participate in democracy is, as I mentioned earlier, because only by participation can we ensure that our interests are addressed and our needs met. We have seen many examples of what happens when we don't participate. The argument that most of these countries are not Muslim, meaning that the rulers are not Muslim, is met with two arguments. Number one, how Islamic is a government where the rulers are Muslim but permit interest-based banking in their realms when they know perfectly well that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not only prohibited it but declared war on behalf of himself and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam on those who participate in interest-based banking. How can a government which is classified as an enemy of Allah by the definition of the Quran be called Islamic? In the Sharia, we follow second point number two. In the Sharia, we follow the principle that if you can't do or have everything, you don't reject or stop doing everything. So, if we can't have the perfect state of government that Rasulullah provided when he was the ruler, we will live with and support rulers and governments who provide justice, safety, law and order, economic development, and general protection of rights and privileges, even if they do other things which are not perfect. 
we don't support them in things which are against Islamic law. That is, for example, we will not participate in interest-based banking, even if it is allowed in the country, but we will support them in everything that is for the benefit of everyone. We will be good citizens and do our best to create and support a government that is beneficial for everyone. We will not opt out, sit and sulk, or indulge in subverting the government. In conclusion, I would like to state clearly and unequivocally that Muslims living in democratic countries must participate in government in every way, knowing that it's entirely in keeping with Islam to do so. They must participate because Islam orders them to support all that is beneficial for everyone, Muslim or otherwise, and to do that in a way that showcases Islam for the rest of the world. This last point is critically important. Muslims must be role models. They must participate in democracy, stand for elections, vote in them, work as elected representatives, but do it in such a way that Islamic principles of justice, mercy, compassion, integrity and courage stand out and are their hallmark and signature. If instead they are corrupt, lazy and self-centered or negative in any way, they must understand that they stand to malign the name of Islam. An Islamic government is one that runs on the principles of justice and compassion that Islam propagates and symbolizes. Its form doesn't matter, its nature does. Let us all ensure that we elect governments in our countries which are good for all citizens irrespective of their caste, creed, gender, religion or ethnicity. Let us all pledge to participate in democracy in every way to create a better world than we inherited.